0: Hi, folks. This is Chris Fry. Uh, I'm out here in Victoria, British Columbia, uh, on the traditional lands of the Lekwungen-speaking peoples. I'm a musician and a senior policy advisor who loves to uh, cross both worlds in every way that I possibly can. And you're listening to Talking Blues.
1: So I want to begin, we've worked together, but I really know very little about you. How did, how did music come into your life?
0: Well, uh, first, Mako, I just want to say how pleased I am to, to be talking to you today. It's really, we met each other a decade ago and, and here we are getting to circle back again. Thank you for reaching out. It's really, really neat to, to see you again. And well, thanks again. for being here. Uh, real pleasure. Um, and congrats on the success of the podcast for, you know, I mean, I feel very honored to be joining in a line of incredible people you've had the chance to, uh, to speak with over, over all the time you've been doing this. Really amazing, amazing legacy you've already developed here. Fantastic stuff.
1: Thank you. I, I feel really lucky to have talked to the people I've gotten talked to. It's talk to. great. Um,
0: yeah. How did I get into music? Is a is, for me is a nice story. But it's a, there's a family thing going on musically in my world, where my father uh, was a musician and he spent a little bit of time as a professional, but uh, more more he played throughout his youth, uh, mostly the violin. Later, turning it into more of his fiddle and the types of music he pursued. He was from California, from Southern California. Uh, came up in a pretty musical family himself. His his grandfather was a jazz drummer in the LA area. Did, did a bunch of playing and recording. I have some nice photographs of my great grandfather, uh, Bill Marcus, sitting, you know, with Bing Crosby and Tommy Dorsey and so there was there was he was running in those circles. Wow. Um, and so there's there's a musical sort of thread, a performer and a musician thread. So my dad got me going, handed me his. Little Gibson parlor guitar, acoustic guitar, you know, when I was five, I had tried the violin at four to follow in his footsteps, but there was, I just, I didn't take with that. It was too much work. So he handed me a guitar, you know, when I was five and, and I, he taught me like an Elvis Presley tune, you know, all shook up and it was, there were the three chords and that was all I needed. I was very excited from the start. But um, his his musicality in, this was in the early 70s. I'm 53 now. So I was, you know, I was five in 1975. We had moved to the Kootenays. My dad had dodged the draft, met my mom in Southern California. She was from Canada. So uh, he got his draft card, I guess, and they came, they came north. And he found a musical community right away in the Kootenays and got into playing old-timey mountain music, fiddle music, like kind of Appalachian Mountain type stuff. And so I grew up really listening to, in a live context, that music being played in the living room and in little dance halls and, you know, in the, in the crazy Kootenays, uh, I don't know how many of your listeners would be familiar with the West Kootenays, but, you know, Nelson, we lived in Nelson, BC. We'd, we'd head up, uh, you know, the different valleys where there were little halls and, It was really a a beautiful scene, you know, so I was steeped in that music and learning it. I played on stage, you know, played the spoons, played a little guitar with them from the time I was six, seven years old. So that's that's the beginnings. Wow. I mean, I'll stop. I'll stop there. I don't have any questions about that. That's like the very, very start. But I can go on if you want me to follow through the journey a bit. But that's yeah, that's where it
1: started. Um, Do you have siblings?
0: I have a sister. Yes, a younger sister, but she didn't pick up on the musical thing at all.
1: <laughs> so I wonder what it was like to grow up in that environment where your dad was a musician. What what did you learn from that?
0: It's a great question. You know, I mean, there's so many interesting dynamics, and I don't know if they're the same for all children of musicians who who end up playing themselves uh, or who don't end up playing. Um, to a large degree, it was really magical, really special. You know, I I will say that I. Was, just felt lucky i would fall asleep you know at the gig on the side of the stage or at the rehearsal at the foot of the you know the, the bass player thumping pumping on his foot on the ground or whatever i just got totally used to music being around so i was steeped in it and they they um were really into finding cool tunes so i feel lucky that uh, and this this circle comes back a little later in my musical story but they they were going into what was, you know, old, old recordings, finding stuff. There was a whole movement at that time, the rediscovery. And I mean, it started in the sixties, I think of old folk tunes, et cetera, but really looking back into the twenties and thirties and forties for, for fiddle tunes and, and singing tunes that were, you know, really, they came from the British Isles, but they'd all been filtered through Virginia and West Virginia. So uh, I, I felt really lucky, but you know, there was a, the other side of the coin, the other side of the magic, was it was pretty intense, you know i 'd sit with a band sometimes and try to play along five six years old, and of course i'd wipe out and mess up and you know, my dad was, he was not a taskmaster, but he was, you know, he would say, come on, get it together. or That, that was a D chord and, and whatever. So there were plenty of tears. I remember, you know, and this is not, I'm talking, not talking about some classical violinist trying to get his son to play, you know, Bach. It was like, we were funking along there to crazy little mountain music. Anyway, there were, there were pressures and through my youth, you know, he and I would play at a wedding together. And I, I remember the feeling of tension for sure. Like it was, it was kind of like trying to measure up, trying to, trying to be there and, Company, my father as he's playing the violin etc so there there was that side but yeah really the magic side and there were plenty of other times when the band would say oh wow little chris can sing a harmony like he found that note you know without anybody trying to teach him what where to sing so there were there were plenty of upsides and maybe you know on the personal side and this is part of the whole journey of the story too is that there was lots of going like there was drinking among the band not me as a six-year-old but they were smoking a lot of pot and drinking a lot and uh that ended up, you know, having a pretty significant impact on what happened with my parents. They split largely because of that. So there was this whole other crazy, not surprising, I guess, side to you know, what goes on in music for a lot of people and their journeys. But that was uh, that was a piece of that puzzle too in, in the early days. So real mixture, you know, of, of like positivity and uh, some early challenges, which were probably in the long run healthy to live through and work through. You know,
1: I wonder. I would imagine that some of the music that the Bills played and that you play was greatly influenced by that upbringing or that kind of music that you were exposed to back then. Um, Was there a point where musically you kind of strayed from what your dad was doing?
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. So, um, and, uh, you know, and it, it is interesting to think about the whole the the track of all the music. So, so, of course, my parents were also shouldn't say, of course, they were also very into the music of the day, you know, the 60s and 70s. And there were lots of those albums I I end up, you know, keeping being gifted from my parents, a lot of their LPs. So a lot of the vinyl I have around is from, you know, the Bay Area 1960s, you know, and into the 70s. So I was listening to and hearing a lot of that stuff as well. Um, So, yeah, I went definitely straight away, got much more into rock and roll, was playing rock and roll you know, had a little band by the time I was 10, 11 years old. We were just playing cover tunes and then started writing right early on, 11, 12, 13 years old. Um, Got really into trying to write songs and was performing them with a rock and roll band, you know, right from the time I was 12 till uh, my early 20s. So that definitely had nothing to do at all with any of that country you know mountain and and appalachian and old timey type fiddle music. So strayed as far as I could probably um I don't know I wasn't a, a like a hard rocker. We were playing stuff influenced by that 60s by the Beatles and stuff like that and and got really into um soul music and R&B music from the states as well. Spent a lot of my late teens early 20s just really really steeped in you know Stax Volt music and, and and that whole thing. So and we didn't really say at the beginning when you asked me to introduce myself, you know, folks who don't know me, which may be a number of your listeners, that band that you mentioned, The Bills, who used to be originally called The Bill Hilly Band, has been around for 25 years. And in terms of my professional music you know, career, that was so it's interesting you ask that question, because that was really the way I got out and played around the Western world and got to tour and do the do the halls and the festivals was with that band, which was As you alluded to, it was more of a folk band. So, yeah, I I circled back to that, and I can tell that story if you'd like. But for sure, spent a decade very far away from the traditional acoustic sounds that I grew up with.
1: So I wonder, I wonder why you circled back. Was there? Was there? I I think if I if I read correctly, you were taking guitar lessons from one of the members, and I presume that it was more jazz guitar that you were learning. Was that correct?
0: Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. So, so as life, you know, I was so I was in Vancouver. We ended up in Vancouver. All this rock and roll was happening in Vancouver, playing around there at the the uh, the haunts and the halls. There were some great clubs actually in those days. So that's like we're talking late eighties, uh, into the early nineties, and uh, I met a woman. And fell in love, and she was going back to school at the University of Victoria. So, we, you know, I traveled over here back and forth while I was doing my rock and roll thing and also like doing a little bit of teaching on the side. I was teaching English as a second language at UBC, you know, exploring other stuff, but that was just on the side. I really still, at that point, wanted to make a career in music. Followed this wonderful woman over to Victoria and discovered this amazing music scene, which to this day I think is the hidden secret of Canada, this gem. There is so much going on in this little city, Victoria. Um, it's unbelievable in all realms, all genres of music. So I landed here in 1995, completely not knowing that I was just following this woman over here and, uh, and quickly discovered what was going on. And just before I'd moved here, I had had a little bit of a jazz epiphany awakening as hopefully most people are lucky to have at some point in their lives, but it took me a while, right? I was like 23 before I'd even like really understood and then discovered that, you know, we had this family history in jazz music and, but my parents weren't really listening to it. Uh, when I was really young, so uh, in Victoria there was a burgeoning jazz scene. Found the great players, started listening, discovered this guy Mark Atkinson, and said, "Hey Mark, how do you teach?" And he was a really well-known teacher. He's a great teacher. So there I was, 26 years old, I guess. I started taking jazz guitar lessons, and you know, for anybody who's listened to, I'd certainly tried to play jazz. Like it's a sell your soul kind of thing. It's not you can dabble, and many people will sort of add jazz to the list of things they do, you know, as a musician. But uh, I learned pretty quickly that it's a it's a really serious business like you have to you have to do the woodshedding as they call it you have to sell your soul and you can't you can't dabble really. But I started dabbling <laughs> and, uh, and learned some stuff you know I, I mean I made leaps leaps and bounds in the year and a half or two years I spent studying with Mark it was really that's where I got my music education because I hadn't really I'd been playing music all those years but I didn't know. You know, you saw, I sat down with him, and he said, "Well, just play me a G major scale up and down the neck of your guitar, Chris." You know, and I realized that beyond the fifth fret of the guitar, I was at a bit of a loss, and had never really spent any time up there, uh, yeah. nor had I really practiced scales. You know, I I could play the chords and and do the stage presence thing and be the lead singer guy, which is what I'd always been. So jazz was what was happening. Like still, I, this is, I still haven't found my way back to folk music at this point, 1996, 97. And there's a great scene. Everybody's playing jazz music. We're going and listening to a lot. They have a great jazz festival here in Victoria. I was meeting and hearing some of the greats. The legends are all coming through town. So at that point, it was like, we're going to play jazz music. Like This is what I'm into. And, uh, but to his credit, Mark and some of his musical co- comrades, who are just a couple of years older than me, uh, we're into all kinds of music. They were not. They were into rock music. They they played all kinds of stuff, and the bass player that he worked with is a guy named Scott White. And I don't know if you know Scott. He wasn't in the band when we came and we met you all those years ago to do the video work we did together. Scott is an incredible musician, bass player, uh, incredible human being, just um, a master in many different areas, which is really kind of rare. Like he could play, he can do symphonic music. He has the reading chops. He uh, ended up leaving Victoria not long after I met him to join the Cirque du Soleil. They had a show opening in Europe. He became the chef d'orchestre of that band and like led this really neat. It was a smaller kind of a dinner theater show, but amazing thing in Germany. So he lived in Germany for almost 20 years. Anyway, Scott's a heavyweight. He's teaching jazz bass to a bunch of students around Victoria. Mark's teaching jazz guitar. So they had this like little stable of kind of admirers, you know, and we were all into what they do. And at one point, Scott and Mark just, it was their genesis. They said, like, why don't we pick up some different instruments, you know, he and Mark, and try learning some old, like, folk tunes from around the world. There's so much cool stuff going on. You know, go to to the Balkans and these cool time signatures and beautiful melodies from here, there, and everywhere. So they had this idea together. And there were a couple of us, like, keen students of theirs hanging around. And we started jamming. And of course, so so Scott picked up the fiddle, the violin, and he was, you know, he was terrible. He scratched away. He wasn't very good at it, but he loved it. And Mark uh, grabbed an accordion and then a mandolin. And before, you know, there were sort of like five or six of us who were playing tunes. And somewhere in the back of my mind were all these old songs from my dad's band, you know, from Loafer's Glory. That was the name of the band. If anybody ever wants to look up Loafers Glory, they're, I mean, you won't find anything. They're they're uh, a legend in my own mind, but that was the <laughs> band from the Kootenays, and I, you know, I had like dozens and dozens of great songs that were great, just party songs, you know, sing along. So we'd be playing something from Italy, and we'd play, you know, a song from from Brazil. We were learning some cool Brazilian stuff, and then we play some fiddle music, and I just started tossing in these songs, and I went back, and I had old cassette recordings of the of my dad's band. And they were a revelation. They were a great piece of the repertoire puzzle for that band. So that's where it came back. Just suddenly, like, boom! Guess what? I've got this like greatest hits of really great tunes that are gonna. And little did we know, we started gigging. People went wild for this music, you know, (laughs) as they had in the Kootenays in the '70s, right? Like, guess what? They're they're tunes that are made for jumping around and dancing and and twirling and singing. Um, So. All that, all that repertoire just reemerged, came flowing through me, and I was. My dad, of course, was excited. If I had questions, he I'd call him up. And the old members of the band, one of the guys moved to Toronto, a real ethnomusicologist guy who'd been in the original band in the, the Loafers Glory band in the '70s, Patrick O'Neill. And he fed me ideas and thoughts. So anyway, it was really cool, and the, and that band just went from there. Like we just, you know, one step to the next got an audience going and started touring and started writing our own tunes and everything. But that's that was the re-emergence, which was amazing. Like I can't imagine if I had never moved to Victoria, I probably never would have never would have re-emerged in that way anyway. It was a real gift, like to me and to the band and you know, it was just a real lift in my life. So you never know when things are going to come back to haunt you.
1: <laughs> when it you. came back to you, did it come like quickly and did you feel passionate about it?
0: Uh yeah, I, I think I, I did, but I like I say I never would have thought about it I never would have gone seeking an opportunity to like go to an open mic and play you know little girl dressed in blue or you know these tunes that were that had been just in my body and fiber from the time I was you know three four years old so so but I got I mean I got really excited because well one it felt somewhat authentic it felt like a folk music that I had actually grown up somewhat in the tradition I mean we weren't living in Virginia or West Virginia. But um, so that was really cool because we were playing, we were grabbing folk music from around the world and really getting into it. But here was something that was like, Hey, this is actually flowing out of me. Like I know these songs, I learned them as a child. And uh, so I think the passion came really, really quickly as a piece of the puzzle. Like I never could have been in a full-time old-timey band. I'm not that into that music, Right. but what was cool about these guys, Mark and Scott and these other guys we were playing music with is everybody was really open to like we don't care what anybody thinks we're going to play this kind of song and then we're actually we'll sure we'll throw in a bob Dylan song like who cares and we'll play even you know an nrbq song in the middle of our set and then we'll go back to playing something from the 30s and then something from the 40s in brazil and then a jazz tune like it was it was free for all right but on acoustic musics the acoustic instruments pardon me the only baseline was no drummer and all acoustic. And, from, and we could play anything. Anything goes. So what a beautiful environment to be in. You know, they were heavyweight musicians. So they, they, we got going really quickly. We were singing nice stuff. You know, the harmonies were great. The arrangements were fun. We were trying to be flashy at times and, and tricky. And that was exciting because I hadn't done very much of that flashy, tricky shit, you know, <laughs> to be honest. So, so uh, yeah, the arrangements were great. Yeah. So it, it, it was just a really neat piece of the puzzle.
1: So if we go back before that. At what point did you think, and I don't know if you thought this, that you wanted to be a full-time musician. Or you wanted to make pursue music as a career?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. You know, I, I think at some level, Mako, there was a there was a really a time in my teens, early twenties when I even thought it was a real possibility. I we were trying to do it. In Vancouver, we were trying to somehow get on the showcases, get noticed, like whatever that meant, you know, sign a record, like get no someday do something, right? We, uh, we won some studio time when I was in my, uh, right around 20 years old, and we recorded, like did 24 hours of just tracking all these songs I'd written. Uh, and, you know, it felt like we could try this, but it didn't really seem like a real thing to me. So it wasn't until I came over to Victoria, I got a job at, at UVic, you know, I was still teaching English as a second language as a thing, but it didn't feel like I was supporting myself to, to eventually become a pro, a professional touring musician. It really unfolded very organically which is great, you know, I had no master plan, I had no vision of the pathway to doing it. And I certainly wouldn't have told you, even when we were first jamming in the living room, all this cool music from around the world, I never would have said, well, this is it, we're on track now, like this is gonna be a thing that we can make money off. of. So it took, it took a couple of years after that before we really started stepped off Vancouver Island, got over to Vancouver, did some stuff. And, you know, thanks to people like yourself and the CBC and, and what's going on in Canada, all the folk music festivals, all the grants, you know, and subsidies, uh, before you knew it, it sort of took me by surprise. And I remember very clearly, like to your question in 2001, I was 31 years old and we'd lined up a whole fall and winter of touring. Like we had just shows right out six, seven months. And I like, I said to my, my wife, I was like, I think I can start introducing myself to people as a musician. Like, Hey, what do you do? You know, you're at a party. Someone says, yeah, what do you do? Like, and it felt really weird. It was like, Oh, i'm a musician you know and and but it didn't take long that settled in and for the next you know, <laughs> seven eight years that was my response to that question so yeah it's cool it just it just happened
1: okay somewhere in there i think when when your friend went to germany to join cirque du soleil did you not did you guys not follow him and and do yeah. spent weeks busking on major major cities in europe
0: yeah, yeah, you you know it was really interesting because we were just getting going and playing a few gigs around town. He got this gig offer and off he went. And so we decided, yeah, let's go and follow him over there. Now, my, part of my life story is that uh, I went to university at UBC and I did a single term in Copenhagen of uh, the degree I was doing which was again nothing related to a business degree, nothing related to music at all. So I had spent uh, six months in in Copenhagen, and then three months traveling around Europe when I was just a few years before all this stuff was happening with the band formation. Um, and so I knew people all over Europe, and I said to the guys, "Okay, Scott's going to Germany. Let's go see him over there. Let's let's whoever wants to come." Uh, let's spend a, a number of weeks in, in Europe. And I have beds, I have floors we can sleep on everywhere. I, you know, I know I have a floor in, in Strasbourg. I have a floor in Amsterdam. Got a floor in, in Milan. You know, and so, so I got in touch with all these friends I had made. And and everybody, we were still young enough. People were like, sure, what the hell? You know, some of them didn't know what they were getting themselves into. But we showed up. There we're only four of us that did this. That, and yeah, it was, that was probably a lot of bands have a, a moment or a period of time that's there kind of formational you know the real genesis and we had spent the time the year before learning up all this great material and we showed up on the streets of europe and uh you know as far as my recollection of it all is that we went over really really well (laughs) like we made enough money to pay for all the drink and food we needed for the trip you know we'd all brought a few bucks in our pocket but took the train around and stayed on these free accommodations everywhere and just played our asses off and played and played played and saw what worked you know got got if you can gather a crowd of you know 100 or 200 people on the Charles Bridge in Prague uh, just by you know whipping out your instruments and getting going and keep them and hold them and fill up your hat with money then you're like okay that song let's keep that one in the repertoire you know and if the next one kind of goes flat it's like instant feedback right um, wow. and, and audiences everywhere we went so it was nine weeks all of basically summer of 1997 we came back and then we, we were like okay we have a pretty shit hot product here um, and, and we went from there.
1: Well, the fact that you guys got nominated for Juno a couple of times, right? Yeah. I mean, speaks to the musicality of what you had. Did you know what you had? I mean, once you got the feedback, once you started recording, did you know what the bills were?
0: I certainly felt we had a great thing going. Like, we were pretty good friends, very good friends most of the time. And... Uh, and the the music, we had gone through this, like I think, long birthing process, like I say, where we learned a bunch of uh, cover tunes from all over the place and honed into what was like entertaining. So it wasn't just music. We were definitely entertainers. There was a lot going on. Um, the second fiddler to join the band after Scott left was this guy named Calvin Cairns, who some in Canada may know or remember. He had a, a duo called the Romaniacs or the Romaniac Brothers that did this whole stick and wonderful thing, playing sort of Eastern European music. And we learned a bunch of that music and we learned a bunch of tricks from Calvin about how to excite a crowd. You know, we'd finish our, uh, our, our show with like these sort of shots and we'd end up doing the splits in time with the shots in, out, in, out, you know, dun, 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 things like that, that were just little extras. It wasn't the whole show wasn't choreographed by any stretch, <laughs> but you know, that, that stuff, once I sort of opened up to it and we started doing it, we saw that people would just freak out. Like people weren't going, oh, this is what a bunch of dumbasses. Because right before that, we would have played a beautiful arrangement of Stardust or something, you know, that was really lush and had been really thought through. So we sort of touched on all that. So I, I, did, I did think and know that we had something special. And when we got out and started uh, touring a little bit, you know, the reaction was strong. But the the big transition for us, like for a lot of groups, is then moving into kind of into composing. So we had this great thing that was really... we touched base with the world, stepped off Vancouver Island as a, as a cover band really playing folk hits. Uh, And then around 2001, 2002, we started writing for the band specifically, like let's okay, we, we know what works. We know what we love. Uh, let's write. I've, I did a lot of. I'm a lyricist. I've basically been the primary lyricist in the band, and did a lot of collaborating with Mark Atkinson. He and I really wrote a lot of songs together. So that was the next big shift, right? So we stepped out. We sort of realized there's something good going on, but can they write songs? You know, uh, and uh, you know, we've 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 gotten better at it. it. took us It took us some time, but that's that was great to start recording our own music, and that's why the Juno nominations meant a lot, because uh, from one album to the next, you know, the second one was an all was all original music and uh yeah we found our path there as well
1: when i listen to music I, I hear something that's definitely you guys do you have a philosophy is there is there a rule that you live by or I, I know you said you know take folk music from all over the world and have you know play anything without drums um but what philosophy or what 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 did you base your music around
0: it's a it's an excellent question i one thing about the band is it's a total democracy so everybody brought stuff that they like so so i i think one of our main ethos was diversity you know uh eclecticism which we we didn't really like that word but it really is about being open to whatever so you might hear a bluegrass tune that would be followed by something that sounds very eastern european you know followed by uh you know, maritime kind of music, sort of more like, you know, British Isles style kind of stuff. So um, yeah, I think that like the underlying, the undercurrent was let's play acoustic instruments, but let's not define ourselves by anything. And that's, you know, that, that became more and more common. Like in the era we were in, there were a lot of bands doing that, you know, traditional bands, certainly in, in BC anyway, where there isn't really like a tradition, you know, no one's playing like this is the BC or the Canadian, you know, colonial west coast that is tradition uh in canada so it was like we were we were free and we had real freedom so that's the starting point and then you know i, I think there are certain things that i like and certain things that mark likes like every album uh, has had like a, a mandolin feature that was kind of a jazz an instrumental version of a jazz tune uh which is really deeply arranged so you know the, the violin parts and the bass part would be very lush lots of bowed instruments um really really serious arrangements with the accordion that we could pull off like fat, fat chords, uh, really well thought through. And other things would be like, this is just a burn and, you know, bluegrass tune that I feel like I want to write something about where we're from. That was actually another mission for sure for me was where is the West Coast music? Where where are the reference points in the lyrics to uh, landmarks in BC? Uh, And there are some for sure, other people have done that, but that was a real, that's always been a goal of mine. Like I want people to hear and when they hear a song of ours in uh, in england i want them to be thinking well i wonder where that particular spot is or that rock or that reference they've just made so that's another part of what we want to do is like be a bc band a southern vancouver island band that brought that to everybody else so i will have to admit on the instrumental on the instrumentation side we totally broke our own rule on the last record we made which is a while back we did have some drums mark played the drum kit on a few songs so shame shame um but no electric guitars yet no electric guitars yet <laughs>
1: Okay, so I have been listening to your solo album, your recent solo album, Two Sides of Canadiana. Mm -hmm. Um, So a few questions come to mind. That definitely has electric guitar. That definitely (laughs) has drums. Um, It's a heavier, not heavy, but it's more electrified than the, the bills that I know. As the lead singer, and I know you said that the band was a democracy, so what... Why do you do a solo album? Is it because you can't get all the material that you want, or is some of the stuff that you write isn't really Bill's material? How? What's the thinking behind doing solo albums? you've done more than one.
0: Yeah, it's thank you for the question. I mean, it's, if this is so funny to just talk about myself like this for for a period of time. I really appreciate. It's fun to talk about myself. So, uh, and the reasons for all this stuff. The. Um, the first solo album I made was 2006 and the bills were still really uh, busy at that time. And, and, uh, but at that moment, there was some stuff I I felt I wanted to record that was not bill. Like certainly I was hearing drums. I was hearing kind of funky stuff, you know, going back to that music. I had loved so much all that American R and B and soul music. So, so that was definitely not, there was not an outlet with the bills to do that, to record that. So that first album for sure, it was like, guys, I need to just take a, a few weeks, I'm going to do this solo record. And I really want to, and, and they all played on it, basically, you know, they all came in and had one part or another on, on the record. But I got to also work with some other musicians, which was very healthy, because I hadn't, I'd been really working with the same crew. Um, you may know also, and your listeners may know the Mark Atkinson trio. So Mark, who plays uh, mandolin in, and, and guitar in the Bills, has had his own trio for uh, you know, 25, 24 years now, and I was for many years the rhythm guitar player in that band, and so it was a, like a Django Reinhardt. That's where it started, right. sort of swing jazz guitar music, right? Acoustic guitars, but it was still with Mark. You know, so Mark and I were together all the bloody time, like everything we did <laughs> musically was us, right? And we loved each other, and we worked really well together. Um, so it was also just a chance to really just say, okay, I want to, I want to work with uh, you know a different horn player, a different bass player, and I want to record this different kind of music. So that was called Raised on Rhythm and Rhyme and you know that i'm really really proud of that record it's amazing some of the bill stuff i look back on i love some of it i'm not as i would do it again some differently somehow but that album that first solo album we spent a lot of time on and uh i really captures a moment for for me what i wanted to do and the sounds i love and some of it's you know more danceable you got the drum stuff going on some of it's a bit artsy i brought in kevin fox this cellist i don't know if you've ever had kevin on your 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 podcast
1: I but know of he's him. yeah
0: he's Toronto based guy you know amazing that we had met out on tour somewhere so we flew him out and he's he just really added to that album so I still go back and listen to it you know which I can't say about everything I've ever recorded and just feel like yeah that's we, we worked hard enough on that tune and the mix and the arrangement and the mic sound and the voice and that I'm really I'm pleased with it so if that was the first one the last one or the so I actually have a new one coming out like in a couple of weeks, a new record right around uh, March 9th is when this, my latest, my newest album will come out, solo album. Two Sides of Canadiana was 2019. And uh, at that time, um, what was really happening is I had a bunch of musical ideas, but I was also having trouble getting the Bills together to do a recording. So I, I'm kind of like the cat herder or the shepherd, or I don't know what the right term is with the Bills, but <laughs> everybody's busy. All the other guys are, are full-time professional musicians, but as I sort of mentioned in my introduction, I have a whole another life now where I'm not a full-time musician. I'm playing a lot of music still, but and I can tell that story later. But um, in 2019, the second solo album was just like I can't get I can't get those bozos into the studio. It's too hard. Everybody's <laughs> busy doing other stuff. So and so's on tour. So and so's got a new baby. This guy's recording something else. Uh, the Bills were playing less at that time. So I just thought, I'm going to do it. I'm going to cobble together the money. And it was, talk about exciting process. It was really, really fun to get back. This producer, Joby Baker. We have worked a lot with Joby. We did the Bills albums, the ones that were Juno nominated. And, uh, he's, he's incredible. A transplant from, from uh, England and France. He met a Canadian woman settled here in the Victoria area. He's another one of these pieces of this rich, rich music scene in Victoria. Like, incredible guy so i just called him up and said you got he he had a couple weeks free in the studio and and we did it and brought in this amazing cuban canadian horn player named miguelito valdez who's featured on a lot of the songs some really beautiful horn stuff and uh richard moody from the bills uh you know is playing on it playing violin on it and and, uh, anyway just it it really again i just had the need to i got to record something i want to get into the studio and make those kind of sounds and um yeah it was it was fabulous but i didn't do anything with it so this is another thing about the point i'm at my life like i'm not i didn't book a north american tour on that release i just was like i want to get it out there and uh, there it is and it's a piece of work i really love and stand by it. but it hasn't had huge legs you know i haven't gone out and, and of course covid came along the following spring and so that also slowed down any sense that i was going to get a tour much on it but uh anyway and the new album might as well like this definitely was uh I felt a lot of stuff going on in my life that I had to get out on a record. And I knew I wouldn't, even if I could get the bills together, uh, the new, the new album's called, and there we were in the flaming 20s. (laughs) <laughs> a bit of a mouthful and there we were in the flaming 20s and it's it's got some heavy stuff for me lyrically there's like some lots of stuff going on uh, has gone on the last few years in our lives with our older son and with my loss of my dad and so it was one of those kind of records that one needs to make i still i there's plenty of upbeat stuff on it because i it's sort of in my blood to be upbeat but it explores some heavy themes too so that's coming out march 9th and um, you know the third solo album and it had its own reason to come into play so
1: i i wonder at With all that's gone on in the world, um, the pandemic, and and just everything just seems different. The music industry also seems different. So when you put out something, some new album, like what thought goes behind that? Because it's harder to sell CDs and albums these Mm -hmm. days. Um, And yet you're an artist, you write, this is what you do. So therefore it's probably important for you to continue creating new songs. But what's the mindset behind recording a new album when you know that going on tour is difficult, selling CDs is difficult? Making any money off of
0: streaming is impossible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's a great question. And maybe now, um, you know, just this big part of my story is that uh, when the bills had sort of burned out a bit of touring around 2007, Uh, we, um, my wife and I adopted a son named Sebastian, and he was already four and he'd been through a lot in his young life, a lot, a lot. And there was, it was a big process. So I basically had to stop. I I just told the guys, I have to stop touring. I'm going to go through this, this work with this young boy. And uh, it was a big, big, a big, big process and a lot has happened in our lives. Um, Since then, but in stopping touring, I realized that I, you know, I need to get some kind of work and keep the money coming in. So I found work here in Victoria is is the government town, you know, in British Columbia, capital city, and uh, I knew some people who knew some people and actually it worked out extremely well, I found some really cool work in climate action stuff that I was really passionate about, and I have a background. I can, you know, I can do the kind of things that one needs to in the kind of analysis and writing and stuff that works well in government. So, so fell and it worked out great. So that, like, from 2008 until now, I have been a public servant, uh, and I, I work now in uh, zero emission vehicles. So I, I work with the federal government. I work with Natural Resources Canada now. I have this job that I just I love with incredible people, very passionate people, who are all trying to transform transportation in Canada. To uh, to a zero mission universe, um, which is exciting and wonderful. So that has been the money maker for me. Um, really, the the, the bills. I toured. I used to still tour with the trio, the Mark Axe the Trio. I've done a little bit of work with this solo project, but I, I was allowed to let go of touring as the the mainstay for income. Because even back you know back in the day, we weren't making very much money off of album sales at all. It was all about being on the road, which is still the case, I think, for you know almost all musicians. You got to be out there to really make the income, right? So, um, that was, uh, that has been in many ways, very liberating as a musician, because I love my work. The people I work with are quite flexible. There are times when I have had a tour booked, you know, we're going off to the UK with the bills. I've had the kind of management who is okay with like, let's find a slot where you can take that vacation and, and make it all fit. So I've done the juggling act, uh, parenthood as well, parenthood and musician and, and, uh, uh, public servant, but, where I was getting to with all this. So that's a bit of my, you know, that's how I, that's how I've been surviving is the latest record. You know, I have the freedom to make an album because I want to make an album and I'm saying, you know, you put the money aside, you sock the money aside with the day job and then you make it. And I'm not going to do a huge promotional effort. I'm not going to go on tour. And I know that. And like you say, no one's going to buy CDs really anyway, I'm going to put, press this one to vinyl. We'll see if there are any audio files out there who want to, you know, piece of the vinyl, but it's uh, it's really a project that's, I don't, I'm not worried about the revenue stream afterwards, which is, you know, I feel very blessed. All the musicians I work with are all full-time musicians still. They're all people who only make their living playing music. Uh, And so they, they, they're having to hustle all the time, you know, and they don't have the same, they're not afforded the same kind of uh, freedom that I feel like I am now. So that's been my chosen path. And some might feel like, oh, well, you're, you're not, you know, you're wasting your, your musical time. You're not spending enough time on your music. And uh, there could be an argument there. But I've been pretty satisfied. I've been quite gratified in the way it's gone. And I'm still trying to pump out tunes and play as much as we can. Around town, there are a bunch of great local gigs that are always happening. I'm always playing in these local things and have some regular jazz stuff here. So, yeah, that's that's how I can do it. That's why I make an album. It's like I've, I've got the music in me. I've got the passion. I've got the incredible folks to work with. And uh, I can pretty much say I'm not too worried. And I also don't apply. Like we used to apply and, and get a lot of grants. So I think there's still plenty of funding out there. But because I'm able to sock aside the money to do it myself and fund it myself, I, I feel like I should leave those grants for the people who are full-time or still and need the grants and you know that support more. So that's where I'm coming from.
1: I wonder I wonder how your approach to music and 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 how you feel about music is different because of that, whether it be the freedom or just the different circumstances by the fact that you're not working on music all the time does that make you appreciate music more do you know what i mean like and, and just also the fact that you don't have to hustle and take every gig that's thrown at you and may possibly do gigs that you're not happy with i just wonder being in that position how you look at how do you look at music differently
0: I mean, I think you nailed a bunch of it. Yeah, I I certainly feel like it's quality over quantity now. And that's the way it is for the bills. You know, we decided long ago, we weren't going to do any of the hard road kind of warrior stuff we did a number of years ago, we're going to take a festival in Northern California that will treat us well and go down and play that festival. And um, so, so there's definitely there's some of that, I would say on the other side of the coin, it's interesting, I, I definitely deal with some sort of imposter syndrome, you know, I do feel like you know, do I belong here in these running in these circles with all these full-time incredible people I get to work with? And the answer is probably a bit of a mix of yes and no. Like I, I don't uh, work on my instrument the way I did when I was 25, you know, 27 years old. I'm not, I'm not knuckled down working on the jazz stuff. Um, So I have a little bit of that feeling, but I just have to live with it. And when I make a record that I feel excited about, like, I'm really, really excited about this, this most recent one. Um, then I, what can I do? I just feel great. I get have that opportunity to do it. And and I feel like a lot of the bands I admire ended up being more studio bands than live bands. I mean, if you've named them, run through them, starting with the Beatles, you know, and it, that's where I really like to focus uh, a good part of my energy, but I still do love live performing. So, um, but yeah, the the craftsmanship of writing, working out arrangements, working with other incredible musicians who can bring out stuff in the music, that's the pleasure for me now. And I I feel like what we did with the Bills, actually, this is really a nice thing. If you get out and do it and you feel like you have some success, I kind of feel like I had that and it felt great. And I'm not longing for it. I don't feel there's anything that I missed uh, by any stretch. There's no fear of missing out on anything now. Uh, we played some amazing audiences, amazing festivals, had some success with the recordings. Uh, So now it's just like, I'm doing what I want to do. And I'm hoping that it grabs some people. And once in a while, you know, you still hear from someone like, hey, this, this, like a couple of those songs on the last album, Two Sides of Canadiana, um, I just I got a message from someone like in Poland or something. Reason you said you know I, I used your this this one tune on something and a whole bunch of people and I did I did got a bunch of like feedback on the streaming like wow suddenly everybody's listening to this song out of the blue uh, you know so the music has in the today's world it can get legs where you least expect it as well which is cool uh, if you get it out there electronically or someone hears uh Me babbling away, you know, on your wonderful show. They I might mean, oh, I should check out this Chris Fry guy, you know. And uh, there are opportunities um, for for on the digital side, which I don't exploit to the fullest. You know, if you have any suggestions, please lay them on <laughs> me because I I'm not an expert at exploiting the digital universe. um My son's my son's trying to get me flowing on TikTok, and so I realized that's what that's the next thing. I was watching. Um, you know who Patrick Watson is? I don't know if you know this guy out of Montreal, incredible Canadian. Yeah, guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Patrick Watson, uh, checking out his TikTok stuff, and it's just so loose and free and goofy. I just thought I got to follow that guy's path. I'm just going to start doing it, you know, just posting little 30 second doodads on TikTok because apparently people are watching. So uh, yeah. Anyway, that's that's my that's my current my current status as a recording artist, and I think the bills will do some more recording. I know I'm talking on all different directions here, but that's, but, I mean, cool. you guys
1: celebrate 25 years last year, right? We Which did. We incredible did. accomplishment.
0: I mean, imagine, right? Like that, that is really something 25 years as a band. And of course I wanted to get us in the studio. Let's do a 25 year album. We couldn't pull it together. It is very hard to get that bunch of guys together uh, all yeah. at the same time. Um, but we will, we will do some more recording and I think it'll be glorious because the, the whole thing about that band is the, is the uh, collaboration and we've gotten more collaborative over the years. So, um, yeah, I'm looking, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to doing more recording with those guys and
1: maybe some more touring. You never know. I, I wonder when you decide to take on the government job and, and good thing you love it, but how long, you know, talking about imposter syndrome, how long did it take you? Cause I'm sure it was the reverse where you thought, oh, I'm not a musician anymore. That this is my full-time gig. Uh, how long did it take you to, to think that that's who you were?
0: That's really, a policy maker. really insightful question um, because total imposter syndrome, right? All I had known was like green rooms and sound checks and, you know, tour vans, like literally, you know, what key are we in? I, that's not a question you ask when you're meeting with the minister of whatever, you know, and it, <laughs> uh, sort things out. So, um, but, but a lot of the skills actually are transferable. So much of it is just in all these, everything we do in all walks of life is just humanity, you know, and interaction with humans. And so, definitely um, a lot of that stuff came in handy but but the truth is when i started i was really green and i never worked in an office environment at all in my whole life didn't know anything about it and uh didn't like it really <laughs> to be honest but the people that i found here in uh, in at least in victoria who are working in this realm like on climate action almost everybody work had come from ngos or recently had you know studied somewhere overseas or done some cool projects and so there were all this, this amazing mix of backgrounds of people I think people who work in the climate stuff often come from that kind of background some of them even play a lot of music um none were touring professionals but so i actually found kind of my people in a way so pretty quickly i realized i was among good friends who were really really passionate who totally flipped the you know stereotype of the public servant on its head there was no one who was laying around and watching the clock and uh being a lazy uh you know government worker it was just just all passion all the time so so, but, but there were plenty of things like, I mean, I didn't really know how to do it, like make a computer really work, you know, I mean, there were computers around, I was using them kind of, but I, I was no like pro at, you know, with Excel spreadsheets or PowerPoint presentations or any of that shit. So I had to figure it all out. Uh, and I did. and uh, So th- those kind of tools or the tools of the trade were different in many ways, but uh, it came in hand, they, you know, it came pretty quickly and like I say um, the music stuff kept going all the time so it actually it didn't feel like I I didn't totally put the brakes on which was nice you know I started the thing and then some weeks later I had to show you know I was playing the Montreal Jazz Festival with Mark uh, with the trio and so it was like get on the plane go out and play the festival come back you know be up be there for Monday morning or Tuesday morning whenever I was able to and then you know it, it kept going like that the Bills went off had a tour of the of North Carolina and Virginia I think and you know we spent a week and a half out there so it was really interspersed, and has kind of gone on that way. But but the touring has definitely slowed. Of course, COVID really slowed the touring down. But um, yeah, so there was definitely some imposter syndrome. But I think people would be surprised um, in the world of you know decarbonization and clean energy, and and that there's there are some fantastic people doing fantastic work out there, uh, even if they're working for the man, as it were.
1: Are you optimistic about that? About the climate? I mean cuz cuz all that we're dealing with and everything that's going on in the world. Um are you positive about how things will be? Oof.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a tough question. A, a quick 30 second question. Qu- answer yeah, please. yeah, yeah, I'll just whip through that one. <laughs> <way>. um, <laughs> But with the work
1: that you're doing, are you optimistic about the changes? You have
0: to. I I guess what I feel like is one has to. Like you got to. You got. We got to try. So that's. I'm optimistic about the people I see working in the field. Um, To be honest about you know my my outlook is that stuff's going to happen things are going to get kind of crazier than they already are. I mean, I just heard that the Ottawa, in Ottawa the Rideau canal is not going to open for skating this year, which is hardly like a total tragedy for humanity by any stretch, but an indicator that in our lifetimes, you know, yours and mm-hmm. mine, you know, everybody skated on that canal every winter, just a few winters ago, I did live in Ottawa for a winter and skated 60 days in a row on that canal. You know, it was frozen enough for two months straight of skating this year. No, one's going to touch a, a skate blade on it. So So things, and that's just obviously a minor example, but the weather people are seeing and all that stuff, I I think that my sons, you know, I have a 12 year old as well, are going to see some shit. Like, let's just face it. Like there could be stuff that's, that's all been predicted and hard to imagine. So uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I'm optimistic that crazy stuff climate wise is not going to happen, but I am optimistic about the people I see involved in this work, both in adaptation and in mitigation and, I feel like music is a part of the whole picture. You know, we've got to keep doing it. We've got to keep performing and gathering and, and listening and writing and singing and playing. Uh, and we got to keep working in whatever we can to, to, uh, to work on the climate stuff. It's, it's really weird. You know, it's a very strange subject area because somehow it just still is out there. It's like, it's not right in your face every day. Once in a while, there's a climate weather event and you go, Oh shit, there's a weather event. Mm. But lots of times there aren't and it's just a sunny day like it always should be in February in Toronto or in Victoria or it's raining like it should be. Um, And and so it's it's hard to stay like hyper attuned to it all the time. And that is good in some ways, but I feel like it's a bit of a danger that we're all, we all suffer from. It's like, it's easy to turn it off. And it, it actually is, you know, as critical as much of a crisis as anyone could possibly imagine it is that but it's hard to keep it at that level or else you kind of go crazy so all that to say i think if we're lucky enough to be able to say we can have balance you and i look at you doing stuff you love i'm doing stuff i love um and we're we're involved in the arts and creativity and that's fabulous and i'm going to try to keep a hand in this other world too just to feel like i can look at my sons in the eye and say you know i did something um, along the way that made some effort to you know we own two electric vehicles. They got bad batteries in them that have all kinds of minerals have been extracted from the earth. But we've taken one step to lowering our emissions. Our whole house is like super energy efficient. So you, take, you do what you can. And, uh, and then you try to have some fun rocking out once in a while, too.
1: <laughs> well, I'm making beautiful music. I'm looking forward to hearing the new album. And um, thank you so much for doing this. Tell me, where should people go to check out information about you?
0: Uh, thank you for asking. So, yeah, people can find information on the website, chrisfry.com, which is C-H-R-I-S-F-R-Y-E.com. Uh, I'm out there in Facebook land as well. And um, at the show is going to air Mako, sometime soon. I guess people will hear this. So before the CD release party, it's going to be on the air, yes. I think. CD release show is on March 11th, and there'll be a live stream option uh, at the Belfry Theatre in Victoria. So people anywhere around this, this great world of ours uh, can tune in to the, to the CD release concert for the album. The album is And There We Were in the Flaming 20s, a collection of 10 songs with an all-star band, including a couple bills, actually. Uh, and then uh, the, the other, other concerts will follow. But that March 11th date will be a good time if anybody wants to tune in and check it out.
1: Great. Thank you so much for doing this. I I met you 10 years ago. I was totally moved by what you guys did. Um, I've been following you since, and uh, I'm, it's, I'm really appreciative that you took this time to talk to me.
0: Well, if you think you're appreciative, I mean, this is wonderful for me too. Great chance to, to reconnect with you and connect with your listeners, and uh, I just... I'm so thankful for uh, what you're doing here. Thanks and congratulations on all the Talking Blues success.
1: Thank you.